Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, how to talk to people different from ourselves, and the deep things that drive us. I speak to people from all different religious and non-religious perspectives who hold all manner of views on politics and other hot-button issues, and try not to argue with any of them. Instead, I want to listen carefully and help all of us better understand what drives us. Before we kick off, I'd love to ask you a favour. The numbers of people listening to this podcast are growing steadily, but we'd love more people to be able to find us. We think that experiencing careful, empathetic conversations is really helpful, maybe particularly in this moment. We want to inspire more people to listen well and seek to understand those on the opposite side of an argument. So if you want to support us in that, would you rate us on your podcast app, review us on Apple Podcasts, and perhaps especially pick one episode you think a friend would really like and send it to them. Thank you very much in advance. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Dr. Gabriele Finaldi. Gabriele has been director of the National Gallery since August 2015. He was previously deputy director for collections at a museum in Madrid, and prior to that, a curator at the National Gallery with a focus on Spanish and Italian paintings. We spoke about his Catholic faith, how to navigate an increasingly visual world, and growing up in South London in an Italian community. I hope you enjoy listening. Gabriele, thank you so much uh, for sparing some time for this conversation. Uh, we will come back to the conversation about your sacred values. So I'm going to go to uh, a question about your childhood. I'd love you to paint a picture of your childhood for me, and particularly if there were any ideas in the air, whether they were religious, political, philosophical, that helped form the man you are today. Well, I come from a large family, and I think that's always very uh, formative. Um, so I'm the eldest of eight children. Um, but we're in two groups, as it were. We're sort of two groups of four. So I grew up as the eldest of four children in the first instance. And I suppose what was quite significant of uh, uh, regarding my, um, my childhood was that um, my parents were, my father from Italy and my mother from a Polish family. So that sense of um, identity and, uh, you know, to whom do you belong and what belongs to you um, were um, questions that were very alive for us as children. Um, we spoke um, Italian at home, uh, but English too. So there was this sense of an identity that was shaped by um, different traditions um, and different, um, different cultures. Um, it was, I'd say, quite a religious household. Um, my parents were um, both practicing Catholics, um, and you know the 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 idea that the um, the, the religious, the sacred, and the holy was somehow always present um, was, I think, very very important in my uh, growing up, in my formation, and uh, and that of my siblings too. Were there many other Italians around? How much did you feel like your family was unusual? Um, I went to a school where there were a lot of um, people who came from, uh, you know, mixed uh, backgrounds. Um, I suppose in South London at that time, the Catholic community was um, often sort of largely Irish, um, Italian, Polish. Um, so I guess, yeah, there were quite a few people who were in similar 
um, in similar situations to to ours. And um, my father was quite um, he, he was quite a sort of influential figure, I suppose, in the Italian community. He was very keen on um, Italian school for youngsters, um, so that the uh, traditions which risked being lost um, in those emigrant families where, um, you know, we were now the second generation, perhaps the language um, and much of the knowledge and the culture risked being uh, lost. It was quite important to try and maintain that. So he was quite involved in um, Italian schools for uh, youngsters, the children of Italian immigrants in this country. And your childhood Catholicism, what did that look like as a lived experience? What were the kind of rhythms and practices that defined it? So um, I think that, um, you know, there was Sunday Mass, of course, um, but there was also this sense that you belonged to um, a series of communities. So there was your immediate family community. uh, There was your parish uh, community. Uh, there was also this broader sense that you belonged to something that was transnational, something much bigger. Um, and we were, you know, I suppose from a fairly young age, we'd be taken to Rome for the big encounters there um, with um, Pope John Paul II in particular. And that's where you got a very, very strong sense of uh, the faith community being um, enormous and being uh, made up of... Um, a great deal of human variety um, and sounds and um, languages and experiences. That was always a very kind of happy and significant, I'd say very formative experience actually for me. It's really interesting. I can't remember the exact details of the polling, but there's quite a strong correlation between uh, Remain voting and Catholics as opposed to Anglicans for whom it goes the other way. And I often wonder if it is that sense of a transnational church that the Catholic Church provides globally, um, a kind of community beyond national boundaries that is uh, part of the formation there and the kind of that imaginative lean? There, there may be something in that. I'm, I'm, I'm not completely, um, I don't think we can be just completely comfortable with that sort of overlap. Um, but I think, yeah, I suppose as, as you grow up as a Catholic, um, you are very conscious, particularly in London, where, of course, the, 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 the Catholic community is very, very mixed um, you're very conscious that you belong to something which is um, you know, much bigger than your own uh, personal family um, experience. Um, you know, I'm sure there are, uh, you know, that's experience felt, that's an experience um, encountered also in the Anglican Church and so on. But um, yeah, I was very, I was very conscious of that. Mm, I think certainly, I would hope that the kind of sense of a, a global church should be present in many different traditions. But certainly, the the Catholic Church, particularly in the way that it's attracted mixed immigrant communities in the UK, yeah. does seem to. To help that yeah and um, you know it's very interesting I, I live in I still live in South London so I'm in you know I've, I've moved very far in a way um, from my childhood and it's been very interesting to see how um, you know the local church has changed from being fundamentally a uh, an Irish church to being now fundamentally an African church but it's um, as uh, Catholic as it was um, when I was a when I was a child you know this this sense of belonging to something which is much bigger than all of us. Mm. So I will ask you about your sacred value, which after 46 podcasts, I haven't quite come up with a very pithy container to explain, but it's really trying to get at uh, the deep values, the deep principles that we try and live by. And people have said all kinds of different things, just a sense of a thread that's run through their life that when it's pressed on, they feel quite compromised. Um, So if anything comes to mind, uh, let me know what you're thinking. 
I suppose um, it, it's to do with um, relationship with other people. And that's, I think, deeply influenced by my faith because in the eyes of faith, um, everyone is precious. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is valued. And I think that for me, that's very, very important. And I do try uh, when I wake up in the morning to be aware um, that, that's, uh, that that's how I should live out my day. Um, so with huge uh, respect and um, being prepared to devote um, time and uh, kindness to others. That, that may sound a little superficial on one level, but of course it comes from a sense that all of us are children of God. And that creates obligations for those who are very conscious of it. Um, and I do feel I'm very conscious of it. Um, you were born and brought up and baptised a Catholic. Have you had moments of struggle? Has it changed colour over the course of your life? Or has it been a fairly kind of steady and stable presence for you? Um, the church has always been very present for me. And my life in the church has always been... Um, very significant. Of course, I've had moments of struggle and uh, in a sense still do. But I think, you know, one major, major crisis um, where I thought that um, I really needed to kind of step away from all this, um, which happened in my late teens, uh, which was extremely painful, um, but very salutary. Um, and I came back uh, really much chastened and much humbled and uh, really desirous of kind of um, experiencing uh, once again that sense of um, communion, that sense of being uh, part of a, a big um, faith uh, family um, and, you know, seeking, and I, I suppose ultimately this is what, what it boils down to, um, seeking a personal encounter with Christ. It's really interesting to me that lots of the people I talk to who are Christians into adulthood in a way that feels kind of stable and defining and rich uh, have often, and I went through it, sort of circled away and come back. It feels almost a bit like the process you have to go through as a child where you disconnect from your parents and then re find your identity and then um, have, a, have a new dynamic with your family. Um, and I think one of the things that religious people feel tricky talking about in public is doubt and struggle and change. I just sometimes want to surface that. So thank you for being so honest. But that, I think that's, that's an experience that everyone has to have in, 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 in one way or another. Um, these things, particularly as you're growing up, need to become real for you. Um, you know, you can only go so far on a sort of inherited uh, faith. Um, ultimately, it needs to become every individual's um, experience. And, um, you know, I always think of that passage in, you know, the Gospel of St. John, where, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Samaritan woman um, has this dialogue with Jesus. And uh, then she goes off to tell her friends about who she's met. And her friends, people in her village, are able to say, before we didn't know, we believed because you told us, but now we've met him ourselves. Mm. It's different now. I'm going to ask a really difficult question to answer because lots of our listeners are non-religious, and for Christians, when we talk about an encounter with Christ, I think many of us have an instinctive kind of nod. We know what that is, but for those outside, 
that might sound like gobbledygook. So for you, what what is that? What is an experience of Christ? How does it manifest for you? Well, that's a very good question because I'm not even entirely sure myself. Um, but there are moments where you can look back on your own history and you can say, you know, I, I'm, I'm confident myself. I'm sure myself there was a very special uh, moment. There was a very special encounter. And that, you know, it can be connected with an event in the family. It can be connected with um, something that you uh, have heard that's touched you uh, deeply. Um, it's poor to talk about it in terms of feelings, but sometimes it can be um, a feeling. I mean, these, these are things that it's not always easy to kind of uh, point to. But I think it's necessary in the life of faith to have these milestones, these um, moments that you can point to and say, you know, that was an, a significant meeting for me with the divine or with the uh, with 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 the. Uh, with the deeply other, mm-hmm. um, because that's how I think your your you know how does your experience of another person build up? Well, through encountering them and talking to them and meeting them and building on the familiarity you've had in the in the past, um, and they sometimes come up very surprising moments and very unexpected uh, moments as well. Yeah, feels like it's one of the things that words don't quite do justice to. So it's one of the reasons I feel. Art and other kind of nonverbal languages exist to try and express some of these. No, I agree. And sometimes, um, because then they're, they're not necessarily verbal encounters, um, the words can only be a poor substitute um, for them. And sometimes they're also intensely private. So they're mm. things that you keep to yourself. They're not things that you necessarily want to share because they're so deeply uh, intimate. Uh, they become so embedded in the intimacy of your history, your personal history and your own personality that um, you know, they're not even things that you're necessarily prepared to bring, yeah. bring to the surface. There's a vulnerability about it, isn't there? Um, I would love to uh, hear about how you, how you do navigate that in the art world. I think obviously the period on which the National Gallery is focused and your career um, in curation and art commentary is focused is a, a, a strongly religious period and uh, religious iconography and um, biblical imagery is a, is, is a real theme. So in some ways it feels being a Christian is a massive asset in terms of biblical literacy and understanding. But how have you found navigating personal faith in a world that's particularly more in the contemporary period known for being um, uh, at least sceptical or perhaps has a half an eyebrow raised to the role of faith. My friends that are artists, I think, feel that people associate it with a kind of conservative values or a kind of bourgeois sensibility that is, tends to be rejected by many people in the art world. So has it felt like something that is really easy and you're at home with and able to talk about or have there been moments where it's felt like there's a gulf? Um, funnily enough, I think um, it, it's, become, it's become much more... Um, frequent to encounter people who have um, an interest or a sympathy uh, with uh, with the religious. Um, I think people feel more comfortable about talking about spiritual values than um, religion, and a lot of people find um, organised religion um, something that they're uh, hostile to, or anyway, not not especially uh, sympathetic to. But um, you know, having also lived some time um, abroad, um, I find that in this country, um, you can actually be quite um, open about what your 
feelings and what your uh, views are, and you're, generally speaking, respected for it. Um, I do think that's an admirable character of the society that we live in. Um, I'd love to loop back to I just that picture of your early childhood and tell me, do you remember your first encounter with art or your first sense of an understanding of what art is? Um, my, my father was much more um, musical and uh, interested in literature than in, um, in painting, for example, or in the visual arts. Um, so I was very conscious growing up that um, music was terribly important and that music allowed you to experience things uh, vicariously, um, which were very profound, um, whether they were you know, about love or about loss, uh, betrayal, uh, hope. So these things could be expressed very, very well in music and um, particularly in opera. So I grew up with um, listening to opera. I grew up to listening to um, quite a lot of um, Neapolitan songs, actually, but um, my parents both felt that it was important that um, there should be some art in the in the house. So, um, you know, we we had uh, reproductions of you know Botticelli and, um, and and Michelangelo and so on. But um, I suppose the earliest memory for me of uh, coming to the National Gallery, for example, um, it was in a way nothing to do with art. It was um, it was to do with uh, somebody who's always been a great fascination to me, and that's um, Charles de Foucault. Um, my mother was doing some work on Charles de Foucault as part of her teaching degree, and it turned out that Charles de Foucault, uh, before he had his great conversion and decided to go uh, and live first in the Holy Land and then in North Africa amongst the poorest of the poor, um, came from an extremely wealthy Second Empire family in Paris, and his aunt who uh, was trying to sort of keep him in order and look after his inheritance. He wouldn't squander it all on, on drink and, and fine living. Um, was portrayed by Ang, who's really the sort of great portrait painter of the, uh, of the first half of the 19th century. She does, he does a fabulous portrait of her, which is in the National Gallery. So Madame Watissier, uh, I suppose, is the, is the reason why I was brought to the National Gallery the first time. And I must have been about... I don't know, eight or nine years old. And what, what did you feel? What did you see? So I, I, I find, um, for me, one of the great excitements, and I think I've, I've had that since childhood, um, is to walk into a, a, a new museum, a museum I've never visited before. Uh, so it's excitement about the spaces, it's excitement about what's uh, hanging on the wall, it's a, a sense of... Um, excitement about what you're going to find and what you're going to learn and what things are going to be familiar to you and what things are going to be uh, new to you. And I still, you know, that's a buzz I felt as a, as a child in my early teens, um, but I still feel it now. I want to ask a little bit about a sacramental imagination. And I was thinking about this because one of the theologians I follow online has been having a spat in the way they do about uh, Protestant, and they were particularly set around literature, and the argument was that uh, there haven't been any very few great Protestant novelists because of Zwingli and the, what happened in our understanding of the mass and something in um, the changes of understanding in the mass and a, a kind of Puritan-Protestant move towards seeing them as um, symbolic or purely symbolic uh, has changed the imagination of Protestant writers and their ability to... Um, 
make great literature. And I was wondering about how that applies to the visual world. And my friends who are much more um, visually oriented said there is a kind of consensus that uh, certainly for many centuries, Catholics make better paintings or make more paintings. And you've talked a bit about the sacramental imagination growing up. Do you feel there is something in the sacramental practice and the role of the mass that forms a particular kind of artist or an artistic sensibility? It's quite interesting you've raised the, 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 the word sacramental because um, sacrament is um, fundamental to all believers. Um, but sacrament recognises that things can be one way and then they can be transformed. And if you grow up with a sense that um, things can be transformed through a sacramental act, uh, that also means that people can be transformed and situations can be transformed. So that idea um, that um, you can live sacramentally um, with a constant awareness that things can be uh, transfigured, constantly transfigured, um, I think it, it, it does instill a sense of uh, excitement and curiosity and desire that that should happen. Um, the other thing is that I think if you're brought up, um, and I'm not saying this is um, exclusive to believers uh, by any means, but if you're brought up, um, as it were, living the sacraments, then you're very conscious that there's a life behind the visible world, that there's a whole kind of other life taking place uh, around us, the idea that you're kind of surrounded by angels, that um, what you see um, is potentially symbolic of other truths and other realities. So I think there's a kind of natural familiarity with that former mentis. Um, you know, there's, there's just been an exhibition that's opened at... Uh, the taste on William Blake. Well, it's fascinating to uh, think about how Blake uh, lived uh, his days where he did sense that he was surrounded by spirits the whole time, that everything he saw had a sort of um, uh, equivalence in a spiritual uh, world. It's a sort of sacramental vision too. Mm. Sorry, I'm sort of pulling together various threads in my head. So... In fact, I'm going to do a, a brief pause to say I realized again for our non-religious listeners that's probably sounds like theological jargon. And I was trying to think, how would I define sacrament or sacramental? What's your first instinct to how you might explain it for someone who's never been in a church? Um, yeah, well, the traditional uh, explanation of uh, <coughs> a sacrament is um, something that uh, is transformed uh, eternally through a divine act. So while its appearance may remain unchanged, uh, there's been a change in its essence. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that, that, that can be applied, um, you know, strictly to uh, the, the, the sacramental species in the mass, for example. But it can be also applied to um, sacramental transformations of, of people. You know, the person you see is the same as they were yesterday, uh, but something has happened and they have been transformed. They no longer uh, feel the rancor that they felt or um, somebody who they uh, despised and hated um, through a sacramental transformation, they now love and forgive. Mm. It is, I guess, related to the title of the podcast. Is, there's something about making things sacred that don't necessarily have to start sacred, but you treat them as sacred and honor them. Yeah. No, I think it's very interesting, this discussion around the sacred. I was um, thinking a little bit about the notion of um, exile, because I think 
you know, there's there's often quite a close overlap between the exile and the uh, sacred. Um, <clears throat> What do you mean? Well, I, I think you know, the, the, there's a great biblical history of exile, of course, on the one hand, that sense that you're never where you ultimately want to be, uh, or there's always a kind of internal hankering mm. for a homeland, for a, a place which is your, your own. And ultimately, you know, I suppose the, 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 the Christian position is that we're all in exile because mm. we're waiting Uh, to return home, mm. waiting to be uh, welcomed into heaven, uh, which is our homeland. So, you know, how do you live your exile? Um, and I think that idea of exile is connected with the sense that there's your life is small, but um, your ex, your the world around you is very big, and the history in which you're of which you're part is very big, and so on. Um, and I think also, you know, as a, you know, my, 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 my parents were immigrants, not exiles. But, you know, again, there's a big overlap there. And as children, you know, in the family, my father made a special effort to teach us the chorus of the Hebrew slaves from uh, Verdi's Nabucco because there was a, a sense that as Italians abroad, they were... Uh, hankering after their homeland. But for me, it always had a kind of deeper sense of hankering for something which would be ultimately uh, satisfying, this sense of um, a, a sort of eternal home. Mm. My husband often talks about how it's interesting the word icon is now part of our kind of computer language. But it's the thing that if you double click on it, a whole world open up, opens up behind it, which is, I think, how kind of icons and iconography have often been used in particularly more sacramental traditions There's a kind of interesting parallel around um, the kind of Protestant Catholic m mood or tendency around uh, word and image, which is obviously an incredibly oversimplistic binary, but a sense that there's at least one big story you can tell, which is a kind of visual, uh, visual, more visual pre-Reformation culture. And then because of that all the confluence of events around the Reformation and the printing press and the Enlightenment, a, a, a Protestant culture that has been very focused on the word, on sermons, on text, on language, which drove so much of kind of Victorian and 20th century. And now we're seeing this fascinating swing, which I've been looking for evidence for this morning, and, uh, and my, my instinctive sense is there's broad consensus that we are moving to a much more visual culture, that our forms of communication are more visual with emojis and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But does that, I think many people, particularly in, the, in our UK culture, and perhaps in our kind of Protestant influence culture, feel a nervousness around that, about a move away from word. Maybe that's a move away from reason. But as someone who is very visual, very steeped in sacramental, do you feel like there's opportunities opening up there for how we engage with each other? Oh, hugely, because I think um, ultimately, um, as, as human beings, we have lots of different um, ways of experiencing the world and um, you know our senses uh, work together with our reason and our emotions in order to understand what's going on around us and I think we need to be open to all the stimuli that help us to become more profoundly human and enable us to understand others around us and I think um, the visual uh, stimuli are hugely hugely important And I do think there's a much greater um, visual awareness now. 
Um, that, that, that's not to say that we don't have to continue working hard with you know our pictures in the gallery, which tell those stories of Greece and Rome and uh, the Bible and uh, mythology and so on. Um, we do need to keep working hard because we need to be uh, talking about those elements which stand at the basis of our um, common culture. Um, but I think there is a, there's a much greater openness to the sort of evidence that can come to you from, uh, from visual sources. And there are often things that can be expressed uh, visually that um, perhaps can't be expressed um, verbally or can't be expressed with the same, uh, with the same level of um, uh, emotional conviction. Mm. Um, difficult to be very precise about it. Yeah. But, um, C.S. Lewis once talked about writing children's stories, which obviously not visual, but are in the realm of the imagination, to tr because he wanted to creep past the watchful dragons of the mind. And I think there is something about the defenses that we put up against new things or challenging things or difficult things that are um, expressed best in. But I, I've always felt very comfortable with the Catholic position, which is it's not just the word. It's the word, it's the tradition, it's the, um, it's the paintings. Uh, all of that kind of feeds into um, making us who, who we are and giving us a, a richer experience of uh, of being human or of being Christian. Let's talk a little bit about your role in the public conversation. And even in the word conversation, there's a kind of bias towards word and, and text. So uh, the public sphere, maybe our common life um, and the role that you play in the National Gallery plays. And we kind of, I've talked to lots of people about the, diff the ways we are, if we're not careful, dividing ourselves and, the, and our fears and, the, and our kind of challenges with engaging across difference. So it was lovely to hear of your kind of immigrant family childhood in South London with opera and fine art kind of shut, shot through it, which frames my question, but there is certainly a, per a perception of, of some of these fine arts as they're known as, as being elitist or um, as being a place where some people in the country just don't feel they belong or that's not for us. How have you and the institution sought to, to navigate that and break down some of those divides? Um, I, I, I find it very difficult to accept that um, what we have here in the gallery uh, is not for us. Um, I, I feel that that um, is something that I need to work against because I deeply believe that it is for you and for me and for everyone. And why is that? Well, first of all, for a very simple reason, because we all own it. So it belongs to all of us. Uh, secondly, and on a deeper level, um, it's part of our common heritage, not necessarily because we've been brought up in um, you know, Judeo-Christian culture and uh, at the basis of our understanding is the classical world, but because um, so many of the things that the National Gallery paintings talk about are about um, our common uh, humanity and the kinds of universal values that we share um, so, you know, whether they're to do with um, family, with uh, nation, with um, a devotion of one kind or another, uh, with a uh, sense of how stories um, help to shape us um, and stories, whether they come from the classical world or they come from um, other world cultures or they come from, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the religious texts. Um, are there to help us uh, navigate the world, to understand it, 
uh, to understand who we want to be and how we relate to one another. So definitely what we have here at the gallery is part of that bigger story. Admittedly, you know, we tell a story that goes from, you know, 1250 to 1900, but so much of what we show is about the experience of being people. Mm. It's really interesting because you said Judeo-Christian and classical and... I try and pay a lot of attention to the way people are talking across difference. And it feels like sometimes these words, which are very helpful kind of descriptive indicators, have also in certain, certain cases been weaponized or are increasingly contested. And I wonder how some of the, the tensions around representation, some of the sense of um, how we can better represent the diversity of, of kind of British history and European history. How does that play here, given that the period that you are confined to is uh, at least more so than now, fairly monocultural? Hmm. Yeah, I think in, in, in a way you're, 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 you're right. And, um, but nonetheless, um, if you look at what... Uh, uh, the kind of um, things that these pictures are saying, um, whether it's um, uh, you know, a virgin and child, or whether it's uh, 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 whether it's Hogarth's marriage or Lamod, um, you know, these are stories that have uh, universal um, relevance. Um, you don't need to come from uh, a European mm. culture in order to find things which are common and valued in uh, your culture. I think they do have uh, the effect of um, confirming deeper human values. So while we deal with a particular segment of uh, European history and a particular uh, segment of, um, of artistic expression, uh, nonetheless, there are um, universal values represented there. Listening a lot to the conversations around universities and there's a big move at the moment that comes under the umbrella of kind of decolonizing the curriculum is there a similar kind of decolonizing the art world happening uh, there is it's a big issue in the art world it's a big issue in uh, museums uh, and of course in museums it's not just an issue it's not just a conceptual issue it is an issue which has legal ramifications political ramifications and it's a very very intense topic of debate uh, at the moment um, it's to do with um, identity politics. It's to do with uh, ownership of uh, objects. It's about ownership of history. These are absolutely fascinating uh, topics. They are extremely complex. And uh, we do everyone a disservice if we try and pretend that they're not complex. Um, you know, particularly when the uh, argument um, is... Uh, to do with kind of returning uh, works of art to particular places, the places they come from, um, you get into all kinds of difficult issues about whether the people who are in those areas are the same people, uh, you know, to what extent they're the, the descendants any more than, uh, than we are. Um, for example, these are the kinds of discussions that, uh, that, that you'll, uh, you'll encounter. So it's very live, it's very important, but I think it's, it's important not to be uh, either um, dogmatic um, or to, um, to be unprepared to listen to other people's points of view. I mean, some, some of these issues are intractable, but I think it's important that they, they are spoken about. And, the, 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 you know, we have a very deep relationship with objects. 
And it's important that we can express ourselves around these objects. And these objects can uh, continue to be the focus of uh, civilized or civilizing um, conversation. You've obviously, uh, we sit in your beautiful office, I'm sure you've had quite a lot of painful and heated conversations around these and other things as you know, these things that are so meaningful to us about art and identity and uh, history and ownership. What have you learned helps make those difficult conversations more fruitful? And are there things that you have learned to just always avoid? Um, I think one of the things that we're very conscious of when we work in museums is that we are um, temporary custodians. Um, so when I think of who the significant stakeholders that I'm dealing with are, of course, it's the public, it's the government, it's um, you know, our trustees, the press, and so on. But I think it's very important also to think of future generations. So I'm, I'm a grandfather, and I think of my, uh, my grandchildren and what the things that we hold dear uh, will mean to them and how important it is that we are always conscious of a province which lies beyond us, um, many generations potentially uh, beyond us. So I think we need to also bear in mind that that's a very important part of how we should think of our uh, duties and our our role. Um, <clears throat> maybe your question was partly to do with, uh, you know, how do you, how do you deal with human interaction? And I imagine a museum is no different from anywhere else. Um, I think, you know, you have to find... Uh, the right balance between, um, you know, giving everyone a voice and ensuring that the um, that the institution does move on, mm-hmm. um, and I think you always act with um, uh, respect, and sometimes you have to act with um, decisiveness, and you try and uh, make all those things happen, and um, people sometimes make a mess of it, and you try and muddle through, um, but I think if you act with um, with honesty and uh, respect, um, then you can be fairly confident you're on the right path. I feel like there's a whole other podcast on leadership I'd like to do with you, but we'll come back to that another day. One final question um, about Jesus. I, um, you've written a whole book about kind of the imagery around Jesus, and I was intrigued that the kind of argument about for non-religious people, how they can connect with the, with the image of Christ and I've spoken to so many people on the podcast, and for some non-religious people, Jesus is really off-putting. They're sort of vaguely intrigued by God. And for other people, God is just a closed question, but they one, one atheist said, I, I want to rescue Jesus back from the Christians because, you know, I'm a fan of him. But I'd love to hear a bit about what you think are the ways in for the non-religious around particularly the imagery of Jesus, and why, why should they bother? Why should they take the time to engage with those kind of pictures? Well, on one level, you could say um, Jesus is a crucially important cultural figure. So on that level, it's important to understand uh, who uh, Jesus uh, is, what people say about Jesus, and what he's um, what he said himself. So I think that's terribly important. And I don't think we can underestimate, or is that right? I don't think we can overestimate um, how significant still to our culture um, our European culture in particular, um, Christianity is. So I think the figure of Jesus Christ uh, remains crucial to be known uh, to understand where we come from. Um, secondly, as a believer, um, you know, the, the, 
the person of Jesus completely fascinates me. And um, if we believe deep down that Jesus has something to say uh, to everyone, and uh, Jesus acted in a way to make everybody's life different, everyone, not just Europeans, everyone, then um, there is a deep desire not only for me to um, have an ever deeper uh, knowledge of Christ, but also for other people to have that opportunity too. In great freedom, I think this is the, the important thing, but it, it, we would be doing a disservice to our fellow human beings if we pretended that, it, that Jesus wasn't important. Really, thank you so much for talking to me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.